You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, this week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Joyce L. Curry, who is currently starring under the baton of Ricardo Muti in Mbalo and Mascara with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, just days after being named the Maria Callas Debut Artist of the Year by Dallas Opera. Yeah, we've heard of them, but look, come on. You know the biggest honor of her life will be that interview on the OBS. Plus two-minute <laughs> drill. Both the San Antonio Symphony and Simon Estes are throwing in the towel. Bogdan Rosic is not throwing in the towel, and Barry Kosky is, like, kind of throwing in the towel. You'll <laughs> figure that out in about 40 minutes. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you're going to click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, and I hope you do, just hit that plus sign. Also, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Going to get that OBS beer coaster. OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver Camacho, great to see you. Uh, hi. Hi, everybody. Hi, did <laughs> hi you hear, Oliver. Did you hear last week's episode, George? Did you listen to it? Yeah, I listened to every episode. You bet. Okay. Did you, did you get the voicemail from Tony? I did. I okay. did. I love Tony. Res- did you respond to Tony yet? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I gestured. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what kind of gesture? Now, now, that, now, now, now that we're podcast only. No, but I'm saying, I'm saying, did you send him his coaster and his lapel pin? What, he needs to oh. send me an address. Oh, he only he only okay. got that for the first time he called in, Oliver. You don't get one no, every we, single we time. No, we weren't offering swag back no, then. No, it's true. It's true. Now he deserves it. Them, so, and yeah. I shall send okay. because I'm a man of my word, Oliver. There you are. That's there true. Are. Yeah. What's, what's happening here? Matteo. Berrettini. You haven't said hi to Weston or to Dustin or to Matt yet. <laughs> Dustin, Weston, how's it going? I thought when you said Matteo, uh, I thought you were talking to Matt, but you just went Italian for a second. I also thought he was just doing a bit. <laughs> so. He was just doing a bit. When we were doing the pre-show setup, we were all showing off our various languages. All right, Always let's, on because, the same let's, page Let's talk here. a little sports. Let's throw it back to Oliver for the sports and then I'll go. So the clay, the clay court season finishes uh, climactically with Roland Garros. And then we have the shortest amount of time that is known as the grass court yeah. season. And Serena Williams Serena Williams has been assigned a wild card in Wimbledon. Uh, but who has been making the waves in the grass court season has been the Italian Matteo Berrettini. He already won two titles. And so he is poised uh, to go far in Wimbledon. And I'm very happy to hear that. Um, for those of you who remember the, I think it was the 2019 U.S. Open, uh, when Matteo had his sort of coming out, um, that I will never forget that year when it was so hot at the U.S. Open that if you were wearing white shorts, um, it was. <laughs> you don't was... have to finish the sentence, Oliver. You really don't have to. You know, but I'm reason why I want to bring this because like I'm annoyed that people who don't know me think I'm thirsty. Uh, people. <laughs> You're just appreciating what you love. <laughs> but I just wanted to put that out there that like if you remember Matteo Berrettini and the humid 2019 US court season, US I, Open I season. Remember. That wasn't the um, only thing that was humid. Yeah. That, that was that was a very special thing for us in the audience. Oh my god. You know, it's funny Wimbledon, so I'm going to London in a in a couple Drink. days Drink. For, for a few weeks and I thought, you know, I'm going to be there. I would love to go to Wimbledon. And, it turns out it's actually not that hard to get tickets for Wimbledon for next year. <laughs> you, you cannot get a ticket for this year. Too late. Uh, Stanley Cup, that's my hockey. My hockey is happening right now. Game three, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning down two games to nothing playing in Tampa Bay tonight on Monday when we're taping. This is make or break for them. I have them winning the Stanley Cup in six games for the three-peat looking unlikely. But what's looking very likely is inside the huddle. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. The Dallas Opera has named soprano Joyce L. Curry the 2022 Maria Callas Debut Artist of the Year for her debut at that house as Leila and Bizet's The Pearl Fishers. The award, named for the 
unofficial godmother of the Dallas Opera, is given to a single performer each season in recognition of a particularly memorable and outstanding company debut. So a little bit of inside baseball before we go inside the huddle. Um, We're recording um, the body of this podcast, the bones of this podcast on Monday. I'm actually going to interview... Joyce Alcori tomorrow morning Revealing and then Weston, all of our secrets. Yeah, Weston's gonna do his <laughs> editing magic to make it sound like one seamless episode. Seamless, no one will be able to tell. <laughs> yeah. Except that neither of you will be on the podcast. <laughs> but no, I mean I'm I'm on the podcast. I'm just being very quiet, <laughs> right. uncomfortably the entire time. <laughs> but what pressure to A have an award named after Maria Callas. Uh, and then B, to sing Verdi under Ricardo Muti for the first time for a Chicago audience. And, oh, this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This little little composer? Ricardo Muti, a famously easy-to-please man. <laughs> <laughs> in a role that is just a walk in the park. <laughs> Amelia in a mass ball. So we obviously will be talking about this during this interview. We'll also enjoy a little bit of Joyce L. Corey's recordings. And she's recorded very um healthily i guess is the word by opera rara opera rara mm. that uh british opera label rara. that is uh rara, rara, that's like a lady gaga <laughs> thing right um the, a, a label that is trying to um you know ex- expand the repertoire in the middle we see a lot of uh recording labels now expanding the repertoire uh on the early end and on the future end but only opera rara is trying to stretch it out <laughs> right <laughs> Get that sausage fat in the middle, too. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right, let's go inside the huddle. Joyce Alcuri singing a little bit of Sombre Foray from Rossini's William Tell with the Halle conducted by Carlo Rizzi from a brilliant recital album recorded by Opera Rara called Echo. Uh, my guest is Joyce Alcuri. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Hi, thank you so much. So I'm so thrilled to meet you. I've been listening to Echo and uh, to prepare for this interview. And just as we were securing you as an interview guest, uh, you were named the Maria Callas debut artist uh, by the Dallas Opera Network, which is, you know, no pressure, just, uh, you know, challenging you to be compared <laughs> to, to, to Maria Callas, you know, an easy, an easy thing to fit the, fit that. Sure. Small, so, shoes, con- small shoes to fit. <laughs> Congratulations on that. That was for your performance of Layla uh, at the pro, in the Pro Fishers. Yep. Uh, at was it, that was at Dallas Opera, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, Layla is one of those roles where it's like, who do you cast in this thing? You know, because <laughs> that aria como autrefois feels very like Michaela, you know, in its weight. But then you That's... have like this coloratura moment in the beginning where it feels right. more like I don't know Offenbach or something like that. You know, right, right. It it's it's a surprisingly difficult role. For that reason alone, because the, as you say, this this aria that in the first act, which is, you know, other than a couple of lines, this is the first thing she sings, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's very uh, middle voice, and uh, you know, and the it, orchestration is pretty rich. So right, right. But then, and then there's this, you know, a lot of coloratura, and and it's very high, um, the aria in the first act, and then then you have the duet with Zurga, which is which is kind of like a a Tosca Scarpia kind of moment yeah. where they're just hurling their voices at each other. And that's, that's quite intense and, and, and dramatic. So a lot of requirements to sing well, that role. I think that people 
shouldn't take for granted, I don't think. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Tosca, but I want to put a pin in that uh, for one second, because okay. last week on our show, um, we talked about uh, Iphigenie on Torrid. And uh, I just want, as, as somebody who sings this role, I just wanted to talk with you about it. One, when you were, when you first got this assignment, do you know which Iphigenie you were going to be singing because of whatever the four different versions that there are like the in Torrid and then the, with the within the each opera, the in Aulis and in Torrid and Taurus, there are like the Vienna version and like the Paris version. So I don't know if it's that much different for the soprano singing Iphigenie, but it just seems like very confusing. It's very confusing for, I think, for people who are uh, Iphigenie neophytes, you know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> actually sing. But uh, you did the uh, In Torrid, which is part three of the saga, which is um, Orestes and his boyfriend Pilad uh, are, <laughs> are, sh are shipwrecked. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this was a whole new world to me. I never, ever anticipated that I would sing Iphigenie. It wasn't even a, a role that was in my musical orbit, you know, okay. when I was when I was studying and growing up. So it was it was brand new to me when they um, when when it was offered to me, and I thought, oh, I don't know, this is not my repertoire. I mean, should I sing this? I'm not sure. Okay, but and then I studied. Do you mean it's not your repertoire because it's sort of borders on being early music or, yeah. it's too, or it's too low? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, too low. It's no. I choose roles based on how they feel okay. and how psychologically and, uh, you know, musically and, and emotionally. Uh, it's not about notes. Okay. Never has been. Um, but, uh, th but I, 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 I grabbed a score and I, and I, I listened and I, I, just fell in love. I loved the I loved the opera, and I said yes. Okay, yes, I'll I'll do it. And then the more I studied it, the more the more I loved it. But beyond that, um, I'm not a, uh, you know, it, it was it was like I, I dove into a brand new pool of works. It was yeah. so fascinating. I, I loved it. I'd love to do it again. Well, I have a friend who uh, is a, a musicologist, a French musicologist, and uh, always maintains that. French libretti are more interesting. Um, I don't know how you feel that same way. Uh, if like, especially you're doing a lot of, um, you know, with opera rare, you're recording like this mid 19th century French repertoire. If you find the words to just be more compelling and the characters be more compelling. Oh, that's a hard question. You know, because French is my second language. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I grew up speaking Arabic and then and then I, I learned French because that's a, one of the official languages in Lebanon um, where I was born. But I there's there's something about the French. Mm, it's such a beautiful language. Well, so is Italian. I mean, I can't. I can't. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you can't. You can't. No, I can't. OK. It's well, just every language comes with its own poetry. You know, and as you know, in opera, the plots are are often very convoluted and very confusing. Mm -hmm. And if we look at them through our modern minds, they sometimes seem complicated, overly complicated and, and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if you put yourself back into the times that these were written, you can see the importance of the story. You can see um, the drama that is in the text. Uh, you can't look at it through today's lens but within within all that there is poetry definitely well um just to bring it back to the maria callas debut artist award uh Iphigenia was a character that um callas she made a movie out of it uh and she also sang um i forget the name of the character in Il pirata uh imogen imogen yeah mm -hmm. and i read in one of your reviews that you know these comparisons to Callas were happening before, uh, before you were named the Maria Callas debut artist. <laughs> so I don't know if that's something you think about about the drama and about, you know, I don't want to say sacrificing your voice, but uh, deploying your voice uh, to serve the music, regardless of whatever the need or the instinct to take care of the voice, which is what mm. Callas was sort of known for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's that's I mean that's why that award is so tricky to like. Say that about anybody, you know? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Opera Box Court. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Okay, we're going there. Well, um, 
I have been, um, uh, I have at times used my voice to express, uh, certain emotions and to, I, I demand, um, color from my voice. And that is absolutely something that I am becoming more and more aware of um, the importance of managing mm. that yeah. uh, for the sake of vocal health. And longevity in your career, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, so it's really um, about finding balance whilst um, maintaining um, a, a sense of spontaneity because because when you're on stage, you have to go all the way. I mean, I have to go all the way. And if I don't... That's why the audience came. So, I mean, I'm so excited. We, I'm so glad you're saying this because we're going to hear you. We'll talk about why you're in Chicago very soon. But um, when I go to the theater, yes, if somebody sings beautifully, yes, thank you. I really appreciate that. But when somebody <laughs> goes authentic, goes for expression, then I feel like, oh... I'm glad I'm here. I'm so happy I made it to this performance. Because you, know? oh, you feel something, you know. That's yeah. great to hear coming yeah. from you as well. Because isn't that why we do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that why a performer wants to perform? And isn't that why uh, an audience member comes to the opera? They want to feel something. They want to be transported. They, they, you know, when I think about why I do what I do, Yes, I love being on stage. I love communicating. But I think that there's something that happens that is beyond anything we can control. When we are on stage and we are performing and we're expressing the feelings and the psychology of a character who, okay, we assume is a human, we're playing a human being. Sometimes we're not playing a human being. But when we're playing a human being, we're showing a real human condition, real human emotion, conflict, trauma, joy, you know, mm -hmm. and I know that an audience member is able and whether they realize it or not, are identifying with a character or not identifying with the character. And so what ends up happening is the person sitting in the chair in the theater is observing a character having an experience and they are relating to this character. And I think subliminally, or subliminally, or unconsciously, I should say, they are being told that you're not alone in your emotions. You're not alone in your life's challenges. Because every human being has experienced a variety of things, so much so that we had to write operas about it. So whatever you're going through, you're not alone. And that's the, that's the whole purpose of art. In general I think and so I think if a singer gets on stage and sings vocally and it's beautiful and it's perfect well great you've done half your job there's more <laughs> <laughs> right and so so I think this is why I push myself to almost to a fault um, and I, I, I need moments where I need to consciously rein it back to, to, to preserve vocal quality and and longevity as you said well that that was what bring it brings it back to maria Callas because she is uh at her heart a bel canto singer she's trained in bel canto and she did everything through a bel canto technique until she didn't <laughs> but um i look at your um kind of i don't want to say wild but uh and disparate is also not a fair word but just your diverse uh mm -hmm. repertoire i mean you have a rosina and you have a Zalome, uh, you have a Tatiana, uh, <laughs> and you have a Tatiana boxed from um, the uh, Great Scott. <laughs> you know. Oh my! Uh, yes, yes. So yes, we're talking. We're talking comedy. We're talking psychopaths. We're talking ingenues. <laughs> um, and then you know now you're in Chicago to sing Amelia, which is once again at its heart a, a bel canto role, but. It's bel canto on steroids. Absolutely. Yep. The orchestra is just about as big as anything Verdi ever wrote. I mean, it's like basically Aida, you know, with bel canto lines, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how are you enjoying that? 
<laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, you're singing it with Ricardo Muti, who, you know, he knows a couple things about Verity. <laughs> right, right. No pressure. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> what would you like me to address? <laughs> well, I just, I just want to say that um, I've, congratulations on being chosen to sing in what might be Ricardo Muti's last um, opera with Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Who knows if he does one more on his in his final year, but it would seem like this is going to be the last one. And uh, I love this opera so much. I do I, too. I, the, the, the melodies are just so gorgeous. It's and, perfect. Yeah. And this aria that you have to, your entrance aria, Mm. Um, man, what a high C. <laughs> it's a high C, right? <laughs> it's a high C. It's a really, really high C. Um, <laughs> no, it's this, that, 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 that aria is really like, it's a mad scene mm. really. And, uh, so, so talk about, talk about character, mm. you know, she's, this is a woman who's, who is quite isolated and her life is, she has a, her, you know, everything is shushed and in in private and you know she kind of she she has a really uh intense inner life mm -hmm. it seems and she's she's very tormented um by her love for ricardo so much so that she that she wants to <sighs> she's going against you know her her faith to go see this fortune teller um she's terrified just she is absolutely terrified and she has no choice but to do this. She's so desperate to to remove these feelings from her heart and and stay, you know, uh, uh, honorable. Um, and in terms of you know the variety of characters that I've played, just just to kind of touch on that, um, my career has kind of it taken it. Things have just kind of happened naturally and automatically. When I first started out as a young singer, I thought that I would be singing Marguerite and Mimi and Liu and Michaela, which I did. I did sing those. But um, when I started professionally, the industry was inviting me to sing Belcanto right out the door. And so it kind of chose that for me. And then I realized, oh, oh, well, this is, this is really fascinating. And especially because I was recording so much um bel canto right right off the bat it just ended you up you became a donizetti queen yourself it so. just happened but i didn't i didn't i wasn't i i didn't think i, I couldn't have imagined that so that just happened and then donizetti and donizetti and donizetti so then i ended up really getting to know donizetti and now something similar has happened in that um the verdi that i've sung prior to this has been i've done you know 70 something performances of Traviata and I've done a few uh, Otello performances with Lauren Mazel but this is my first you know big girl Verdi and just like with the bel canto this Maestro Muti invited me to sing this um, we did the Verdi Requiem together last year in Palermo and then he invited me to do this and I wasn't expecting it I didn't ever imagine that I would sing Ballo you know, before I sing, Aida. I don't know, yeah. Cors yeah. Corsaro or something, yeah. okay. you know, yeah. um, but here we are. And uh, I feel like I'm in, I'm in good hands with, with the maestro. And so, and it, it's, it's feeling great because like you say, I'm singing it as a bel canto role and then I'm infusing it with drama and uh, really getting into, into my body for those, those big moments because it is bel canto on steroids. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we throw this term around a lot, and I have my own ideas of what uh, bel canto means for a singer like you. Uh, and you can disagree with me or not, but I always think it's trying to find the Italian vowel, uh, trying to keep the vibrato speed even, uh, trying to make sure the uh, registration changes aren't so dramatic. Uh, and then if possible, keep the tone beautiful. <laughs> if, <laughs> <you're> right. <laughs> is there anything you like? Is there anything you like to add to that, or is there something that you think you disagree with about that? No, no. Everything you said is is absolutely accurate. I I would just add that with bel canto, it's 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 very important within the line that nothing ever really sticks out 
you know, it's like, like in a car when you're driving and you need to brake, you don't just go, huh, and, and then the person, your passenger kind of, how, how do you say? Uh, uh, yeah, like, like jolts forward. Jolts or like, forward, yeah. right? You want to brake smoothly. You want to accelerate smoothly so that nothing sticks out from the musical phrase. And I think that's something to really be conscious of when, when singing bel canto. If, and, do you know what I mean? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And okay. I mean, does Muti, I mean, I, I kind of know what the answer is already, but uh, does Muti help you with that? I mean, we're talking about um, the first aria, Ma mm -hmm. del lo, I forget how it's, Ma del orido, or Eco, Eco, Campo, Eco Lorido Campo. Campo yeah. mm -hmm. And uh, there's this big moment, uh, you know, at the cadenza um, where it sounds like, oh, she's going to have a beautiful, you know, it's going to be a beautiful floated, see but instead you get the entire orchestra just sawing away on this mm -hmm. thing it's a does, big moment does he help you with that do you feel like it's increasing in a way that you can sort of ride it or is it like oh f me I'm oh just... <laughs> no absolutely because you know it's it's the, that that this is why verdi is such a genius because the whole aria leads up to that moment mm. you know it's she she gets madder and madder and madder and then she, she just can't take it anymore she's imploring god that she has to sing a high c you know <laughs> <laughs> to in order to to, to 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 just it's like it's like destroying the horcrux you've got to you've got to you have to <laughs> i mean she ha she has no choice but to sing a high c in in the way that she's so she's imploring god to have mercy on her. She is so desperate. So the orchestra just swells in this way that, I mean, and, and the, the thing that is so wonderful, um, in working with Maestro is he, as, as you know, he is known for being precise, for demanding the, all the musicians to do exactly what Verdi wrote. Verdi wrote. Well, I just became Italian all the time. Verdi wrote. Uh, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's not for the sake of just um, being correct and accurate. It's not from a point of view that is scientific. Mm -hmm. This is what he wrote, so we must do. Well, yes, there is an element of that. This is what, what this is what Verdi wrote. This is what we must do. But there's a reason, and especially in this opera, which is so theatrical, th th there is not one note out of place. So all the tempi changes. All the little recits, all those moments—they're all—they're all written in order to tell the story and for the drama. Mm -hmm. So, when you do exactly what Verdi, what the Verdi wrote, you, <laughs> you the the drama comes to life because he wrote it that way. And so everything when Maestro is saying do exactly what he wrote, he's right. It the it brings the drama. It tells the story. Yeah. It's fantastic. What is, I, I want to ask you two more questions about the show. What is it like to have a moment like Moro uh, in this opera where it's like, okay, everybody be quiet. Now she's going to sing a song and you're just going to get a cello and she gets to do whatever she wants, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that moment is a gift. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It's just, it's a singer's dream because t time stops. Right. Um, and it's, just it's so satisfying to sing because it's beautiful but also because it's it's the woman at, at her most at her lowest and her most vulnerable and her most honest you know and so and he and 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 verdi wrote it in that way that it's just naked almost she's like oh i have nothing left to lose just yeah. let me see my son and it's such a special, special moment. It's, I have nothing else to say other I'm, than that. I'm usually crying before. Once the cello goes, I'm like, okay. I know, I know. It, it, it's such a privilege. It's such yeah. a privilege. So on the other hand, we, we talk about this aria as it being a gift for the soprano. But uh, would you say that Yosto is a punishment for both the tenor and the soprano? <laughs> I mean, that cabaletta sounds so, um, it just sounds so difficult to me. It's I don't really, know, like, yes. It's difficult. <laughs>
Not gonna lie. Okay. Was, it really he is. <laughs> He's supposed to be this guy that's really good at writing for the voice. Who was the original soprano that was able to sing that? I mean, you know what? I mean, listen. These days, these days, it's it's you can, you can tass it. You could you know, um, we're not doing that. We're doing yeah. exactly what's written, as you yeah. can. Uh, uh, I'm sure as you can Smoothie, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it's very difficult. But let me tell you this. There's before that ending, the ending of the Kabbaletta, there is music from heaven when they, when she tells him she loves him. And it's just, <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, you, I, I literally feel like I'm leaving my body in that moment because it's, the music is, is, is from God. It was music. It's, it's, it's heavenly. It's not, it's like they, they both, th th those two characters just, they're completely transported. And that moment, nothing else exists but their love. And, and, and it's, I can't even begin to understand how he conceived of this music that must have, that must have been given to him. It's, it's, I mean, is there a more beautiful music <laughs> than that when two people express their love to each other? I can't think of anything. I think it's incredible. Uh, well, well <sighs> I cannot have uh, scripted a better commercial for this uh, this performance that's coming up <laughs> with uh, Francesco Melli as your Ricardo. Yes. Um, I forget who's the Ulrika. I didn't research this. Uh, I'll look it up and I'll we'll give good details. Oh, okay. Um, you. Her name is Yulia. I can't pronounce her last name. Okay. Um, but she is absolutely incredible. I mean, this is a really fantastic, <laughs> really impressive voice. Really and gorgeous. Gorgeous. Other, and then, okay, I found it. It's uh, Yulia Mato, Macho, Macho, Machokina. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then you have an Italian, Damiana Mitzi, as yes, Oscar. Yes, wonderful Oscar. It's really a great cast. And Lucas Alsi. Oh, wow. As as uh, Renato. Mm, yep. And yep. performances are, well, by the time you're listening to this, folks, uh, the first performance will have happened. I will be there on the last performance on the 28th, but I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, Joyce Okuri, congratulations on the Maria Callas Debut Artist Award. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on these upcoming performances in advance. And thank you for being a guest on Offer Box Score. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. Oliver, I think my favorite part of that interview was when you asked her about that thing and she responded so eloquently. I know. That really she was so, her answer <laughs> cool to that question was just. It's really so, sitting with me, you know? Yeah, exactly. It really yeah, stays with yeah. me. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I really like is how well this has been edited together so that no <laughs> one can tell that there's been any time shift whatsoever. <laughs> the only time shift is right now. Two minute <laughs> drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Odessa Opera reopened with a gala performance dedicated to the armed forces of Ukraine. The opening comes as the country announced a ban on the performance of broadcast of music, brought, announced a ban on the performance or broadcast of music by Russian composers and artists who were Russian citizens any time after 1991. The musicians who have condemned the Russian invasion are eligible to apply for an exemption. Following a season of no cancellations due to COVID-19, the Metropolitan Opera has released its final ticket sales numbers. The company sold 61% of available tickets during the 2021-22 season after returning from a one and a half year absence. However, sales were down from the 75% in the last pre-pandemic season. General Manager Peter Gelb noted, We consider it to be a triumph in that we started and we ended and we never missed a performance along the way. The board of the San Antonio Symphony has dissolved the company entirely after a lengthy lockout of its musicians, saying, quote, By unanimous vote, the board has initiated the requisite steps to file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. 
The assets of the symphony now lie in the hands of a trustee who will liquidate them, pay what creditors remain, and close the doors. The stage managers of Des Moines Metro Opera have unionized and joined the American Guild of Musical Artists. AGMA will now be the exclusive bargaining representative for stage managers at the opera company, but who's going to be the company's exclusive sports drink? Famed bass baritone Simon Estes will retire from the opera stage following a, a performance as a part of the Des Moines Metro Opera's production of Porgy and Bess, where he will appear as Lawyer Fraser. This will mark the 103rd of his nearly 60-year career. The opera holds particular importance to Estes as he was a part of, the, of a 1985 production at the Met, where he took on the title role of Porgy. To commemorate the 100th anniversary of the birth of renowned Italian soprano Renata Tabaldi, the Italian Cultural Institute of New York, in collaboration with the Renata Tabaldi Museum and Foundation, will present a special retrospective exhibition. It will showcase portraits, exclusive photographs, and unpublished videos highlighting the, the soprano's American American triumphs from 1955 to 1974. Musician Amanda Aldridge has been honored by one of the world's most sought-after commemorations, the Google Doodle. The search engine marked the 111th, yeah, count it, Tabaldi, 111th <laughs> anniversary of a celebrated London recital given by the classically trained British soprano and composer. Her father, of course, was the legendary African-American stage actor Ira Aldridge, and her mother was the Swedish opera singer Amanda Brandt. Joel Thompson has been named composer-in-residence at Houston Grand Opera, where his previous commission, The Snowy Day, premiered last year. In his new role, Thompson will be in charge of strengthening the organization's relationship with the greater Houston community, lead new education programs and partnerships, and mentor young artists, including composers and librettists. In trade news, Barry Kosky, the intendant of the Commercial Opera Berlin, will step down in July after 10 years at the helm of the company. His final production is called Barry Kosky's All Singing, All Dancing Yiddish Review. Kosky <laughs> will remain at the house in an advisory capacity. Seattle Opera has announced that Dennis Robinson Jr. has been appointed as its next director of programs and partnerships. The Carnegie Mellon University alumnus, or Carnegie Mellon University if you're nasty, has served in administrative roles in such companies as Palm Beach Opera and Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. In not trade news, when Austrian Culture Secretary Andrea Meyer said not long ago she wanted a woman to run the Vienna State Opera, most saw this as a statement of no confidence in the present intendant, Bogdan Rosic, who's in the middle of his first turn and up for renewal. The replacement shortlist consisted of six women, five men, including Rosic, and he kept his job now remaining in the general director post until 2030. Exit stage right, Canadian pianist and coach Denise Massé has died at age 76. Massé was inducted into the Canadian Opera Hall of Fame in 2013 after a long career as a member of the music staffs of L'Opéra de Montréal, the Metropolitan Opera, and the Juilliard School, as well as working at many more of the world's leading musical institutions. And on this day, June 20th in 1819, it was the birth of the Rhenish Jewish conductor, cellist, and composer Jacques Offenbach. In 1832, it was the first performance of Fromental Alevi's La Tentation in Paris with the composer conducting. In 1843, Fyodor Stravinsky, the father of Igor Stravinsky, who was also a bass, was born in Novy Dvor near Rechitsa, Russian of Polish descent. In 1891, Italian mezzo-soprano Janina Arangi Lombardi was born. Uh, she is the teacher of Leila Genscher and Maria Stader. I stand. In 1894, Jules Massenet's La Navarresse premiered in London with Emma Calvet in the title role. In 1924, Italian conductor Silvio Varviso was born in Italy because he was Italian. In 1937, <laughs> English bass Stafford Dean was born in Kingswood, Surrey. In 1947, it's Albert Herring Day, the first performance Woo! of Benjamin Britten's opera at Glyndebourne. And one for Weston in 1969, it was the first performance of Penderecki's The Devils of Luden in Hamburg at the Staatsoper. That is your two-minute drill. La troisième, la troisième, la troisième ne dit Tout 
Just a little bit of Offenbach for you. That was Juan Diego Flores singing the uh, couplet from uh, La, uh, Belle, La Belle Hélène au Montida uh, with the Teatro Comunale di Bologna Orchestra led by Roberto Abado. The, it's the training wheels version of Amezami because it's a step lower, but you still got those octave leaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> La Belle Hélène, that's a great opera, actually. It's not done so often it's i really, love any story really about about paris and the yeah. choi- the choice of paris because he's I think just so a, stupid and it's just such a great story yeah <laughs> and like all the different goddesses who are like whatever think he's hot but he's really dumb <laughs> the original himbo <laughs> archetypal himbo <laughs> all right weston you're gonna be the guy to explain the google doodle and amanda aldridge yeah Take amanda aldridge was really interesting i i i don't know what hole in knowledge that i had um because uh, usually when when uh, an opera figure pops up in the Google Doodle, I'm like, ooh, I know who that is. I'm I'm excited. Amanda Aldridge, I did not know. Um, and I di- and I did a little bit of searching, and she's really fascinating. She was a on a, a black uh, singer <laughs> composer. Uh, she she composed mostly. Uh, uh, she she started off as an opera singer, um, but then um, she had a. Uh, an I- incident where she blew out her voice uh, when she had like laryngitis or something, and so her her. Her singing career ended kind of early, but she ended up uh, composing a lot of uh, more popular music, a couple of suites and light light music under the pseudonym Montague Ring, which is an interesting pseudonym. But I think what's really cool about her is her influence on uh, future generations of black uh, singers. Uh, She had a few notable students that included uh, people like uh, Marian Anderson. Who? <laughs> Whomst? Lawrence Benjamin Brown, Roland Hayes, um, Paul Robeson, even who is who? You know, is, <laughs> it just she was so fascinating and um, a really sort of uh, influential figure in the uh, in, in the black cultural life of the time. She was born in 1866 and lived until March, uh, uh, well, not March of 1956, uh, and uh, had a just this huge career and this huge influence that we don't talk about because, you know, obviously uh, sometimes the accomplishments of black people in classical music get buried. And I just, I just thought it was a great that uh, she was being highlighted during the, um, the week leading up to June. I mean, you know, I I, actually, this is with all sincerity. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing that is a bigger honor than like being or a a bigger way of getting your uh, name out there for like the whole world to see Mm -hmm. than being on the Google Doodle is being interviewed on OBS. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like if she was around to be on, to be on our glamorous Dallas Opera Network uh, interview videos, get your Ouija boards ready, gentlemen. (laughs) So Amanda Aldridge is awesome. San Antonio Symphony is less awesome. Okay, it's not the symphony that is necessarily right, less yes. awesome, but the board and the the governing body, there is some stuff here that does not fully add up to All right, me. You know I'm very slow of study, so make this as simple as you can, Matt. Okay, so the symphony has the the board of the symphony has voted unanimously to disband. They've been in um the orchestra has been on strike for a couple of months. They've been locked out mm. essentially. Uh they can't seem to come to agreement um the story from the times paints that in very um neutral terms but based on some (laughs) statements from the from uh one of the leaders of the union um mary ellen gory who's the the union chair and a principal second violin in the symphony like it just does not add up so it really seems like this is a yet another case of like a really badly mismanaged organization from a board that doesn't really care about the art or about the artists um, they all. There was a a local reporter who wrote up uh, like kind of a postmortem and was talking about how they used to rely on eleventh hour donations all the time to get their bu- budget balanced instead of ever setting up some kind of endowment or any sort of independent Ugh. finances to to make it stay solvent and be able to plan. Um, the board is making all these claims about how the requested budget of like eight to ten million dollars that the musicians are putting out there, which is in line with what they've had for the last ten years, is unfeasible because San Antonio is quote unquote a low income city. Um, 
But if you look at similar sized metros that have similar median incomes, most of the budgets of their orchestras are like two to five times what what San Antonio is requesting. And even if you take out the five times, which is Cincinnati, um, Cincinnati is, I mean, that's a very historic orchestra. That's Mm -hmm. a town with a lot of musical tradition there. You can make an argument that they are not a peer of San Antonio, even though numerically they look that way. Let's take them out. You're still left with cities like Salt Lake City, Nashville, Kansas City, St. Louis, similar size cities, similar median income. Those budgets are all in the 18 to $30 million ranges, and they have lower or similar growth rates over the last, you know, relevant period of, of years. Also, if you believe the musicians, which given... The information that has become available so far, I am inclined to do. You're um, going to say something about the pandemic, aren't you? I just I'm not. so we talked about this at the time <laughs> with, at, when all of these negotiations were going on during the pandemic, and people were asking for temporary cuts that were needed to stay afloat. Um, it looks like the board was indeed taking advantage of those necessary measures, quote unquote, necessary measures at the time, um, and are blaming the pandemic to try to enact the same kinds of budget cuts that they tried to get through in the 2017 union or, or negotiations. Like they're almost exactly the same terms. Um, And previous comments from other board members have led some of the musicians union to believe that other board member, that uh, donors are pulling the strings behind the scenes to try to strong arm them into a smaller orchestra, lower budget. Um, And it's really interesting that none of this goes remarked on in the Times piece. Uh, Yeah, it's very strange. They're actually usually pretty good about union negotiation stories, about telling both sides of the story here. But, like, it just does not add up here. And I don't want to get all tinfoil hatty, like, just (laughs) point at them and call them neoliberal shills. But, like, (laughs) this is not, like, it's just, it doesn't seem to be a full picture of the story here. Um, and all of this seems to be very much like, I think you should leave hot dog guy. Like, we're all trying to find the guy who did this of the board. Yeah. And, like, their statements shouldn't be taken seriously if that is the case. Yeah, it's it's a really, I mean, obviously you always hate to see a, a, a symphony or any music organization go under. But it does seem to have been pretty preventable based on what we're seeing and comparing it to other places in similar situations. We, we've talked about before, like Matt said, about how, you know, how... The pandemic has been leveraged against these places. I would also like to put forward that, you know, there is a big problem, particularly in the U.S., uh, not just for symphonies. Obviously, this is not an opera company, but we felt it was significant enough to include in the two-minute drill um, because it has a lot of the same issues. You have a lot of problems where you have a lot of trustees and donors who don't really care that much about the music. Yeah, it's they're, about they're, for, they're there for the hobnobbing. Yeah, exactly. I, there's there was um, uh, a certain symphony orchestra near where I used to live. Uh, we'll say that uh, that uh, very famously had, I believe, is the 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 president of the board of trustees or what or whatever his title was, who famously bragged that he had never been to a single concert, um, and uh, and spent very lavishly so that uh, they could have these really fancy downtown offices. And once uh, and then once some shit hit the fan they were put off to the side the, the the they almost went bankrupt they had to downsize they're they're still in this little shitty building uh in a bad part of town because of you know this one guy back you know 15 years ago now and this is a constant problem we have when we depend on funding from these you know private individuals who don't necessarily care who don't care about the the art or the money or paying people being on the board of a symphony or an opera company i mean it's not like you're trading pork bellies and wheat futures i mean these are human beings making art Mm -hmm. it requires a very different set of hands and a very different way of working and and clearly this board didn't didn't get that yeah yeah And, and also just so so irresponsible to depend on last minute donations and not set up any kind of endowment that's that's nonprofit 101 Yikes. There was no good segue after that story. <laughs> yeah, just kind of sad. Uh, I yeah. hope I hope that something happens uh, that turns it around for San Antonio. I hope we Any don't angels see repeats of this. In, uh, in southern Texas. You know, yeah, where, and as, you know and where to put your money. This is definitely one of those times where uh, I, I was I've been thinking about this story all week, too, because, you know, of all the. The warning signs, certain economists saying that the re- a recession might be uh, again on the horizon. 
yeah. uh, which, you know, to which us millennials are like, oh, oh again. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, it really is something that that tends to kill a lot of arts organizations that aren't prepared, that don't that have boards that don't care. And this now is the time to prevent that from happening, to, you know, batten down the hatches and really invest in not just the monetary aspect of it, but invest in the art and the people. OK, well, here's um, here's the segue of some the good news corner in terms yeah, of the future it's got well it's got to be barry kosky he's, de- yes. so he's done he's done 10 years at the commercial opera and he has not single-handedly there's a lot of people under him but but you know he has the, two hands he's I the mean. intendant <laughs> the uh, basically like operetta is back and it's back in berlin and it's exciting True. and when you look at the staatsoper and the Deutsche Oper, like, there's no comparison in terms of the excitement that the Komischer Oper is creating versus those other two institutions. Like, the repertoire is unusual, it's unique, and it's done typically brilliantly and in a very, very memorable way. I mean, come on. Last production, Barry Kosky's All Singing, All Dancing Yiddish Review. I love that. that I, I sort of love the name of that, actually, so... <laughs> the man the man has guts the man has absolute guts and look if the purpose of art is to entertain give that man you know four more years i guess he'll be there in an advisory <laughs> wow. capacity yeah he's consulting what about the, now can you explain this whole thing about Less rosich stress. just as uh, bogdan rosich i was so confused when you were talking about that yeah i said so, un- bogdan, that, so bogdan rosich replaced um not dominique meyer at the um uh, oh, no, I think it was uh, Dominique Meyer at the Vienna State Opera um, against the will of, of the Austrian culture secretary who uh, she wanted to have a woman. That didn't happen. Rosich's his contract is up. It's time to renew. They get together the shortlist of men and women. And Rosich keeps his job and is now going to be at the um, Staatsoper until 2030. So against against the wishes of the culture secretary in the face of all these other applicants. Here's, here's the thing, right? Is like the Vienna state opera will print money because it's the Vienna state opera. It's nothing to do with the intendant, right? Yeah, that's true. When you run the Vienna state opera, all you, you don't sign the front of checks. You just sign the, the back of checks because those are the that's the money <laughs> they will never ever 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 <laughs> let that cash cow it won't yeah. culture cow yeah it's it's, it's it, I, also i was wondering uh, uh, he's gonna remain his post until 2030 are the that's such a long uh long post of the job uh especially I mean, when that's he like was... two presidential election cycles <laughs> he's the president vote, of opera people. <laughs> <laughs> he is the president of opera but is he like <laughs> Is he like trying to trump his job and like make it like oh third term or like Putin like oh I can now I can now be president for another ten years you know I don't I don't has know there been a coup at the Vienna State that. Opera is what <laughs> exactly. we're asking that's that's what I would like to see I would like to see the coup there <laughs> that's gonna be quoted out of context <laughs> congrats to uh, Des Moines Opera uh, for scoring the last performance by Sam. Uh, Simon Estes. That is. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. They they lucked out on that what a one. Career. Right? The end of what an a era. Career. Yeah. yeah. Jo- joining Agma is less sexy than <laughs> having Simon Estes last performance, but it is a real step. I'm not going to say that's them putting on their big boy pants because they're a very notable, respectable summer opera company. They don't need me to pat them on the back, but it's really great for those artists to be guaranteed a certain amount of uh, career protection, financial mm-hmm. stability. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap it up, I, 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 guys, I know you talked about this you know, a couple episodes ago. We've got the final numbers in now from the Met company selling uh, just over 60% of its available tickets during the 21-2022 season. If you were selling a major league baseball stadium at 60%, you would be called like the San Diego Padres. Like that's laughable, <laughs> right? This would be this would be the um Cleveland Guardians, you know, at at 60%. Oh, you're you're just coming for them right now, huh? Put them on blast. I don't understand how Peter Gold can like look the press in the eye and say that we consider it to be a triumph. He says, "Quote, we consider it to be a triumph and that we started and we ended, and we never missed a performance along the way. 
Well, I, th- I think it's about like the psychological impact because uh, when it comes right down to it, the Met is the most visible opera institution in in the United States. So uh, the sort of symbolic value of putting on every single show, even if it wasn't very well attended, I think is, at least in Peter Gelb's eyes, if not everyone's eyes, I think a more important goal than having half of those shows and having them be more full. That being said... Um, you do need to have some sort of fiscal uh, balance so you don't wind up like a, a certain uh, a San Antonio symphony. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you need to watch out for happy talk from management in any kind of statement like this. But like, it is a good point that tourism is not back to where it was, especially yeah. international tourism, because, uh, you know, there is still a pandemic. And so. especially considering how bad, you know, the Omicron surge and, and things like this that happened during the season, of course, it was going to be lower and we knew Which this one? was coming but uh yeah exactly well uh, and, and then actually i i think that part of this quote was left out right because what he said was that we uh, we never missed a performance along the way what a pity that no one saw any of those performances <laughs> let's wrap the show up good call bad call on opera box score good call bad call time to wrap the show up as always starting off with oliver camacho so, a um, friend of the show, Karim Suleiman, was profiled on NPR. Yet another honor, not Karim. quite the same honor as being on OBS or being the Google Doodle, but uh, to have your <laughs> concept uh, become a story on what was it, All Things Considered, or Morning Edition, or Weekend Edition? One of the one of the shows. One of the editions, exactly. Uh, and you know, we know that um, Karim is very. Uh, social justice forward and everything that he does. So um, check out this piece. We'll have a link to our website. The name of the piece is An Arab American Singer Reframes Music About the Crusades. Mm. And that's, of course, about his Spoleto show, which just closed the uh, Unholy Wars, I think it was called. Yeah, I believe so. Matt Cummings. Okay, so I did need a little bit of a break from uh, Opera News after researching everything that was going on in San Antonio. And my Twitter feed has been full of everyone posting these doll e memes, oh, which me is too. the AI generated um, like art creator where you basically give it a prompt and it creates very like complete looking images. Um, and apparently someone posted this thread about searching a made up word. Krungus into Dali and all of the pictures were of the same monster and I was just <laughs> scrolling through this like absolutely crying I can't wait to see who's going to make the first Dali opera we're going to show we're going to show this in our show notes as well because you have to see it it needs to be seen to be believed is it da- Dali is in like Salvador Dali I think so with a Wally pun in there as well <laughs> god I'm just so because it's a robot boring Weston Williams <laughs> Well, my favorite Dolly uh, from this past week was uh, uh, someone input uh, the phrase uh, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach tra- uh, trail cam footage. And that was definitely nightmare fuel. Um, but my <laughs> I, I have a sort of a combination good call, bad call. Our friends of the show at Haymarket Opera here in Chicago, they were putting on uh, Joseph Boulogne's Anonymous Lover. And uh, I was like, I think I'm going to go, but I put it off a little bit too long. And wouldn't you know, mm-hmm. they sold out before I could get a ticket. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I should have mentioned it. Um, that theater has 162 seats in it. Yes, I think yes. I could fit more people in my bathroom than, than that theater holds. <laughs> and you um, have. <laughs> I have more French roommates uh, than that theater can hold. <laughs> Uh, no, but it's it was charming. The show was absolutely charming, and it will be broadcast on a certain radio station in Chicago, uh, so you'll be able to hear it at the very least. Excellent. I'm glad that, that's a good call then for me, since I'll be able to yeah. hear it. Tampa Bay Lightning up six two over the Abs. Maybe maybe I'm gonna predict this series right. I got a good feeling about this game. Don't but of jinx, course, don't jinx it, George. Super excited to go to the UK <laughs> and to share some. Uh, British content with everybody on the show. Of course, I got a Glyndebourne ticket. Getting my tickets for Covent Garden as drink, well. Going to snag some interviews. Drink. Oh, I'll be drinking my pints, boys. Don't you worry. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell. NormWaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify. Click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or even email us your hot takes. Opera box score 
at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take, just like Anthony from the Bronx. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Joyce Elcurry, and your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you click on the Google Doodle and go down the Amanda Aldridge rabbit hole. We're back with an all-new show next week. We celebrate America and the best American singers. America. Plus, you get more <laughs> opera headlines, more hot takes, and more singing and dancing in Yiddish. Join us. <laughs>